This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today's episode is the final installment of the spooky edition of the pod. I'm releasing this episode early so that it comes out on Halloween, because I thought that would be fun, but I also wanted to make room for one more piece of horror content this year, and the listeners of the show could probably guess what it is. It's a new series that's out on Netflix done by my favorite horror director, Mike Flanagan. Yes, I'm talking about The Fall of the House of Usher. Right up top, massive spoilers are coming up in this episode, so if you haven't seen it or you haven't finished it and you want to before it's spoiled, pause now and go finish it before you listen to the rest of this. There also will be some brief mentions of things like suicide, so just know that this episode, much like the show, is going to deal with some heavy topics. I really, really, really enjoyed this show. I don't think it's any surprise because I have enjoyed every other show that uh, Flanagan has put out as part of his now yearly, (laughs) it seems like his yearly contract with Netflix. I think that the overall premise of referencing Edgar Allan Poe was very interesting. I don't have as much of a background in um, Edgar Allan Poe content, so I'm, I'm not going to be talking too much about like that aspect of it, but I will note which characters are named after which piece of work from Edgar Allan Poe, and on my sources page there will be a link to an article that um, I guess Netflix put together that has every reference to Edgar Allan Poe from the show, if that's something that you're interested in taking a look at. So yeah, overall, love the show. I do always appreciate that Flanagan's work always have some sort of um, recovery narrative. So there's always someone either going through recovery or dealing with substance use. In this one, he hits really hard on the opioid crisis. And kind of the moral of the story is that the family in the show is behind the opioid crisis. It was a very thinly veiled reference to like the Sackler family. And Flanagan does not pull any punches on determining that the actions that led to the opioid crisis are inherently evil and selfish and motivated by greed, which I 100% agree with. <laughs> so I, I think that that was a very interesting setting to put this like horror show in. Um, I'm not going to spend time talking about the opioid crisis on this episode because I have in the past. So if you want to hear about that, that's on episode 34 where I talk about dope sick um, and the kind of history of how the opioid crisis got started in America. But just know that I would say just like New York is the fifth character on Sex and the City, the opioid crisis is a major character on The Fall of the House of Usher. Flanagan also does such a wonderful job of incorporating in LGBTQ representation to his shows. I would say every, yeah, every single one of the major series that he's done, starting with Hill House, has had at least one main character who is queer or in some type of same-sex relationship. And I mean, Haunting a Bly Manor, that's like the crux of the show is this like doomed uh, romance between the two women. Um, and this show is no different that there, there are, and there are not just gay characters. There are characters that seem to have more fluid sexuality. There are characters that are seen with both men and women or, you know, or not even seeming to have a preference. And it's just a part of the character and not a like sticking point or something that's harped on or pointed out. Um, and so I, I do appreciate that Flanagan is able to do that. And he works with actors who are also so incredible in 
showing that, showcasing that, and hiring people who are good representation. So this my glowing, my gushing for Mike Flanagan once again shows up in this series. So you can already tell that I'm going to recommend it if you haven't watched it. So what I'd like to do for this episode is I'm just going to kind of talk about each major character very briefly and the kind of psychological concept that they represent. And so here comes here come sort of the spoilers. I'm going to go in order of the siblings in which they are killed in the show. So we're going to kind of work our way up <laughs> along the siblings in the same way that the show does. I do want to first start by talking about Verna because she does pop up in everyone's story. And so I think we should start with her. Um, Verna is the uh, devil, I guess. <laughs> she is this like supernatural character who makes bargains with humans. And she has made a bargain with Roderick and Madeline Usher, who are the, I guess, matriarch and patriarch of the House of Usher. Her name is a, actually a reference to the raven from the poem Nevermore. And so Verna is an anagram for Raven, and she is represented by a Raven throughout the show. You start to see this motif, and she even has a very like scary Raven mask that she wears at some point. In the poem, and I will say Nevermore is actually one of Poe's works that I've read and remember <laughs> reading um, and enjoy. The Raven is kind of this like silent judge of the narrator of the poem and um, stirs up distress in the narrator, even though the raven itself does not does not do much. It's, it's just like its presence is eerie, and it does have like a supernatural quality to it because it knows what the narrator of the poem has done. And that is kind of Verna's role in the show, is she has been observing this family for decades because she made a... Uh, bargain with Roderick and Madeline in 1980. So the show takes place in 2023. So uh, what is that? 50 years? <laughs> 60, 60? I don't know. However many decades it is between 1980 and now, she has been watching the family, keeping track of them and judging their actions to be lacking. And she makes that pretty clear. They do do this funny, it's not really funny, but they do this interesting bit in the show where as the characters are trying to figure out who this woman is because she, people keep seeing her at the scene of the crime, they dig up these photos of her and basically she's been pictured with every single like horrible politician, billionaire, like anyone that you would think of thinking of like a corrupt, greedy person, like Verna has been pictured with them and includes like Ronald Reagan, the Koch brothers. It goes all the way back to like... I think it's even like Woodrow Wilson or something like pretty much like every politician or rich person like the Rockefellers and stuff Verna has been pictured with. So you get the sense that she is she has like a morality in that she obviously does not care for the greediness of human beings. In fact, she has a speech later on toward the end of the show where she says it is so fascinating that human beings have all this money to spend on things like TV and movies and, you know, um, like the the parties that billionaires throw. But all you have to do is take some of that money and you could fix all these problems. So she has, in a sense, a morality and an idea that, like, there are things that humans do that are wrong, but she is outside of time and space, essentially. And so she does not have a problem making these bargains with human beings knowing that they are going to use the power she gives them or the protection she gives them to do horrible things because she knows that they will pay and they know what their payment will be up front when they make the bargain with her. She also targets each character based on their specific like insecurities and weaknesses. So the, the kind of persona that she puts on when she interacts with each of the siblings as well as Roderick and Madeline is different. She like has different voices, different outfits, like things like that. But each one is like very specific to what the person she is interacting with fears about themselves and what they are like weak to. And I'll talk a little bit about that with some of these where we see how she shows up to some of the siblings. But 
across the show, she has some interaction with each of the siblings before she kills them. And each of those interactions is basically her giving them a chance to redeem themselves. And the reason why she's going after the children is that the bargain she made with Roderick and Madeline is that she will, like the the price of her protecting them from all legal consequences for a murder that they had already done (laughs) and um, like granting them basically wealth and power the payment is that everyone in their bloodline would die at, on at the same time. And so that's why like each of the siblings is dying day after day and culminates in, well, Roderick kills Madeline and then they die together. Or you'll see if you watch the end of the show. Um, but she does give each of the siblings like some sort of warning before she kills them. Um, even though we realize at the end that she wouldn't really have given them an out because she kills the granddaughter of the family who is like the best person in the family, like truly the (laughs) nicest person in the bloodline. And Verna says, I don't want to have to do this, but that's the bargain. So she's bound by these rules. She's bound by this very interesting morality and does seem to be like on the side of like working class people and, and sees that greed is wrong, but then actively helps human beings to be greedy and amass power and wealth. So a fascinating character all on her own and her own contradictions, but she is not a human being. So I don't know if psychology applies to her in the same way. (laughs) So let's jump into the siblings. So starting with Prospero. Prospero is, uh, he goes by Perry mostly in the show, and he is named after a character in The Mask of the Red Death, which is a Poe story. Prospero or Perry is one of the bastard children, which is of this of the six siblings, four were basically born of like affairs that Roderick had with other women or like one night stands. And then two, which are the oldest two, are the children that he had with his wife, Annabelle Lee, which is another Poe reference. Um, so there's this divide between what are considered the like original children versus the bastard children. And then there's even a divide between like the older bastard children and the younger bastard children. And so Prospero is the newest to the family. He's 25. He's like just realized that he's part of the family and he is making it his day job to spend the money of the Usher family. And I don't blame him. I think if I found out that my dad was actually a like good jillionaire who started the opioid crisis, I would be trying to lose him as much money as possible too. (laughs) But my dad is not a good (laughs) jillionaire. So his money is safe. Uh, Perry really represents hedonism. That is kind of the kind of core trait of his storyline and his character. His only purpose in life is to pursue pleasure to his own detriment. And his like just pure pleasure-seeking puts other people in harm's way, including his sister-in-law, including his partners, because he's in a like polyamorous relationship, and uh, everyone that he invites to, the, to his party, which are kind of like the most famous, prestigious people, he puts them all in, in danger. Basically, Perry's story shows us that there is a limit to how much pleasure we can seek. Like, there, there might be a point where it is too much to pursue. So basically, Perry's episode concludes with him wanting to throw this big party at an abandoned Fortunato property, and Fortunato is the company of the Usher's own, and he, much like everyone in this family, is impatient and rushes and doesn't check in with things like, where's the water coming from? And Uh, Are we even allowed to throw a party in a condemned building? And so basically, through a series of rushed and impulsive decisions, hooks up the sprinkler system to vats on the roof, and those vats are full of toxic chemicals. And at the stroke of midnight, he has the sprinkler set off, and the entire party is covered in this like horrible flesh-burning chemical. It's really, really disgusting to watch. I will say, just like (laughs) warning if you are going to watch it, it's truly horrifying to see. But we, this is the first time that we see 
Verna being directly involved. And she, it's interesting because it's like, she doesn't actually, like, she doesn't hook up the sprinklers. She doesn't put the idea in Perry's head. Like, she might because she appears to him as like an apparition by the tanks. So she draws his attention to them, but it's not like she hooked them up or directly like had this, this happen. She's just kind of there to facilitate the way in which each of the characters flaw would take them out anyway. Perry's hedonism would lead him to die anyway, maybe not at age 25, but maybe at age 27, right? The, isn't that the age where like all those celebrities die? 27 is like the scary age if you're like a rich person who does drugs. But Verna may have hastened the situation by appearing and drawing his attention and whispering in his ear in certain ways to make him have these certain ideas. Interestingly, in Perry's story, we see that Verna protects the like working people and she hypnotizes like the bartender, the DJ, the security guard. She hypnotizes them and gets them to leave the uh, room or the building where the sprinklers will be going off so that none of those people are harmed. And she also tries to warn Maury, who is Perry's sister-in-law, so she married into the family. She's not technically of the bloodline. Um, so Verna's honoring her deal. Like she said, only the bloodline and Maury's not part of the bloodline. She tries to warn her and she Maury does not heed the warning and ends up getting caught in the chemicals, but she is the only survivor. And it, it is implied, and I, this is how I interpret it, that Verna protected her from as much of the chemical as she could, because there should have been no way that Maury survived that. I mean, nobody else survived that incident. Um, but Maury is exempt because she's not part of the bloodline. However, Verna does not spare the rest of the guests who are there, who are also very wealthy people who are part of Perry's world. So in a way, there's this morality tale of the consequences of hedonism. Um, and the, the like. there are bystanders to this type of hedonism, like the working class people who make you drinks and are your security guards, that those people should not have to deal with the consequences of the like off the rails hedonism of the very wealthy. So yeah, I think Perry just overall serves to represent this idea that although pleasure is important and seeking things that make us happy and make us feel good is an important part of being a human being, that there are limits to just pure hedonism. And if we only live our lives in pursuit of our own pleasure and we don't consider the people around us or the even just the consequences of our own actions, then we will cause harm. And, you know, I, I think that <laughs> there is something to that. I mean, I know that not everyone has a gajillion dollars to throw an illicit party in a condemned building that's full of chemicals. Like, that's a pretty, pretty intense consequence. But I think we can think about this idea of, you know, am I only pursuing things that make me feel good to the detriment of the people that I care around me and I'm not able to see beyond my own face, beyond my own red mask um, because of how much pleasure I am pursuing and when does it end? When do I kind of hit the hit the uh, wall, so to say, of this pursuit? So thus ends Perry's story. And next we have Camille, who is the uh, next of the bastards. And she is named after a character in a Poe story called The Murders in the Rue Morgue. And she is also killed in a monkey morgue, which I will get to. So her whole thing is, is very, like, references that story. Camille is the PR person for the ushers. Um, and by being the PR person, that means she has access to all of the dirt on all of her siblings and family members. And it's throughout the show, her role is to continue digging up dirt about like what's going on around her. Her, the concept that I think she represents is spite. I mean, even her job is done out of spite. She wants to know everything about everybody all the time so that she can kind of feel like she's better than them. And I think the flip side of her spite is a deep shame. Camille feels a very deep shame about who she is and how she has lived her life and the choices that she has made. So the kind of 
reaction formation or compulsion she has is to then learn as much dirt as she can about the people around her so she doesn't feel so bad about herself. Camille also is just not a great person in other ways. Like she is sexually exploiting her interns. She's very rude to everyone around her. Like she has her flaws as well. Um, But this like shame spite cycle that she is locked into really fuels a lot of the decisions that she makes in her life. Camille's downfall also eventually becomes comes to her because she is so fixated on her half-sister, Victorine, who is... Camille and Victorine are both part of the bastards side of the family, but they do have seem to have this like particular animosity toward each other. And it is revealed that the reason why Camille is so fixated on her sister, Vic, is that Vic is really the only one of the siblings, and specifically of the bastard siblings, who is able to present herself in a very good light, in a very altruistic light, whereas the rest of the siblings live these like hedonistic and almost meaningless lives. Victorine, and I, I will talk more about her a little bit later on, she has a job that is, or the company or project she has started within the Usher empire is about helping people and designing a medical device to keep hearts beating longer than they would with like a traditional pacemaker. So because Camille is so fixated on her sister, Vic, she continues to pursue, pursue, pursue dirt on her about Victorine's um, company to see is this really as good, as altruistic as you say it is. And she does realize that it is not. It, it, the medical device does not work. Victorine is faking data, hiding the fact that she's killing monkeys or chimpanzees with her medical device research. And she really is just as greedy and ambitious as Camille and the other siblings are. So Camille ends up going to the facility to continue seeking dirt. And she is then killed by Verna, who... I guess controls a chimp <laughs> to, to mauling Camille um, or at least facilitates a chimp mauling <laughs> for Camille in, in the monkey morgue. And so in a sense, Camille's spite and drive to feel better about herself has driven her to be in a situation where she is killed and she, Verna gives her a, a very creepy speech about, <laughs> you know, like Camille's drive. Um, But I think Camille and Vic are set up as such interesting foils because Camille, she represents spite, but she also represents shame. And this like deep shame, this this feeling of there is something inherently wrong with me or because I act this way, it means something about me. And shame is a very paralyzing emotion. Shame isolates us. It prevents us from forming connections. And that is exactly what Camille's life is. Camille has this wall built between herself and her siblings. The only intimate relationship she appears to have are her interns who she is sexually exploiting. She doesn't seem to have any long lasting intimate relationships or even platonic relationships. And so I think Camille is deeply ashamed of herself, is ashamed of her family, is ashamed of the role that she has in her family compared to her sister, uh, who has, again, a a more like public facing good position than Camille does. Um, And Camille knows that her job is to eat the crap for her family. Her job is to hide things. And I think the more dirt and, you know, gunk for the family she hides, the more she takes that on and associates herself with it. She must be dirty. She must be nasty because she deals with these things. So Camille's shame drives her spite and her spite drives her shame. And it's a vicious cycle that leads her to be isolated and um, alone. And in fact, the only time we see her really connect with one of her siblings is when she's seeing Leo and she has to be under the influence of drugs to like be close with him. So it is, it is really an interesting way of how shame can truly isolate us and is an emotion that needs to be dealt with as soon as possible because the longer that shame festers, the longer or the more intense the consequences of the shame will be and the harder it will be for us to reach out for help because we are stuck in a shame cycle. So truly, if you want to learn anything from Camille, it's 
address your shame up front <laughs> in whatever capacity that looks like. A therapist, a friend, a journal, uh, you know, a self-guided discovery journey. I don't know, but something to address that shame before it consumes you. Next up on the chopping block, we have Leo or Napoleon. He, that's his full name. Uh, this character is named after the narrator of a short story called The Spectacles, um, which apparently is about a character who learns that he needs to wear his glasses and he should not be vain. And in a way, that is how Leo is killed by his own kind of vanity and selfishness. Leo's story is that he's this kind of uh, playboy. He has a long-term boyfriend that he's living with, but he's seen having affairs with anybody, really anybody in front of him he will apparently have sex with. He does every drug imaginable, usually all at the same time. And his job in the company is that he makes video games. So he's like a cool online guy. Um, and I have to say, the, the actor who plays Leo is the same actor who played the sheriff in Midnight Mass. And it is truly a different he is, he is all over the spectrum between those two characters the sheriff was like a very tender and emotional and like just a, a you know a man struggling with a moral decision and dealing with discrimination and you know very complex character and leo is like a party boy who like literally can't stop partying and you know there's more depth to his character as well but it just was it was fun to see that actor in a very different type of role um, because Midnight Mass and Haunting a Blind Manor, he played very sensitive characters and now he's he's literally one of the worst people in the show <laughs> in just the way that he treats both his boyfriend and his boyfriend's cat, which is a big no-no for me. Um, so this is the crux of Leo's story. He um, lets his boyfriend, or he, he wakes up after kind of a, a drug-filled night to see that he appears to have killed his boyfriend's cat and rather than tell the truth or own up to it, he decides to hide it by getting a replacement cat. And that replacement cat he gets at a shelter that is run by Verna. She appears and the cat turns out to like literally be the devil and is torturing Leo, scratching him up. And he ends up going like insane trying to get this cat. And he's like punching holes in the walls and he sees the cat appear on the balcony and he runs at the cat and he falls to his death over the balcony which is a reference to the story that his character is named over of like being so blinded by like rage or vanity or whatever is going on that you don't see your ultimate demise um leo is not only like not able to see that he's about to run over a balcony but he's unable to see his partner and that's the big piece of his episodes is his partner is really struggling in their relationship and leo has basically said you're not allowed to tell me that there's a problem with the drugs that i do you're not allowed to tell me there's a problem with any of my behavior uh, i'm going to do how i do and once you bring it up i break up with you um and in fact that's the last conversation he has with his partner before his death is the partner says something about like you know, I know you're grieving because your siblings are dying, but, you know, I think maybe you should cut back on the drugs. And Leo says, what did I tell you? The second that you say anything about my drug use, you're done. And he basically tells the boyfriend, like, get out. We're, you know, you're not my boyfriend anymore. So Leo is this kind of like extreme um, selfish character and, and represents, I think, this core selfishness. I think it is very, he's very similar to Perry in that um, it is about like seeking pleasure. However, Leo, uh, Perry was more about like upping the pleasure seeking each time. Like he was like chasing the high of, I guess you would say dopamine or and then like serotonin and stuff, like chasing that high of, okay, the next pleasurable event has to be even bigger and over the top. Whereas Leo, he's, he's kind of content with where he's at. He's content with like the drugs that he's using and the video games that he plays and the people that he's having sex with, um, but that's all he wants. He can't see anything beyond it. And he can't see how his actions affect his partner. I, I don't know if it affects his family so much because they all are <laughs> they're all kind of the worst, um, but he definitely, it affects his relationships. And that is how he, Verna is able to give him this demon cat is like, he's just like not even paying attention. 
So yes, the cautionary tale of Leo is we have to be able to look beyond our own noses, right? We have to look beyond ourselves to see what is around us and understand how we are affecting the people around us. Again, very similar to Perry, um, but this very strong streak of selfishness really plagues Leo and is unfortunately his ultimate demise. The next sibling up is Vic Victorine. Um, she is named after a character in a story called The Premature Burial. Premature Burial. Um, and as I mentioned when I was talking about Camille, she is kind of the most good <laughs> um, in terms of like what business venture she seeks. So Perry has a party planning business or a, an event business. Um, Camille is a PR person. Leo does video games. And Vic is helping to design a medical device that keeps people's hearts beating. And she and her girlfriend, well, the girlfriend does most of the work. The girlfriend is like the actual doctor. But Vic is the money and is there to kind of support this. Um, and she ends up in her own blind ambition and greed ends up pushing for human trials way, way before they are ready. And that's part of why she and Camille are at odds because Camille has realized that Victorine is faking the data and she is hiding monkey bodies when they died and reporting them as being monkeys that lived after the surgery. And she's also using an illegal adrenaline substance to keep the hearts beating after surgery so that they look like they lived um, after having the device implanted and then when they die saying it's from, you know, something else, it's not from the medical device they just jammed into there. So she's trying to move along to human trials. Interestingly enough, Vic is being pressured by her father, Roderick, to get this device done because Roderick has been diagnosed with a type of vascular dementia. And so having this medical device would keep him alive for longer um, because vascular dementia means that you are losing function in your brain because of a problem with your vascular system. And the heart of that <laughs> is your heart. Uh, it's the, you know, it's, it's the part of our body that brings us blood. Um, so she is getting this like extra pressure from her father. Um, and then also her own ambition of this would be an amazing discovery if this medical device does work. And her, story is highly influenced by the Telltale Heart, which is another Poe story that I have actually read. Um, and the Telltale Heart is primarily about guilt. And I think Vic is gu guilty to the core. <laughs> that That is what is going on with Vic. Basically what happens is she um, encounters Verna at the clinic where her girlfriend uh, like does medical care when she's not working on the device. Um, she runs into Verna. Verna is like the perfect candidate for human trials. And Vic coerces her into signing up for the trial and does not give this woman in informed consent, which is a, another important topic on this show. Um, but she coerces Verna into um, signing up to do the human trials and basically tells her like, we are 100% ready and this is going to change your life and save you. She does this without telling her girlfriend, and when she does finally tell her girlfriend that I need you to perform this surgery on a human woman, like, tomorrow, her girlfriend is like, you, I don't know who you are, this is crazy that you would ask me to do this, and tries to break up with her. Vic throws a statue at her head and kills her girlfriend, and then in a, what I would say is a stress-induced psychotic break decides that she can perform the surgery and is going to practice on her girlfriend. So she cuts her girlfriend's body up, installs the medical device, and then this is where the telltale heart reference comes in, is that for the duration of like her, her death episode, she can hear this noise, and it's the noise of the device pumping her girlfriend's heart, even though her girlfriend is dead. And this is the reference to telltale heart, which is that uh, the character kills a man and puts him in the floorboards and can hear the heart beating, um, even though the, the body is, is dead. Um, and so she's plagued by this reminder that she did something horrible and her father comes over to talk to her because he's like, I need this device. I need to know if it's ready to go. 
he hears he does hear the noise too and follows her to the source of the noise and realizes she killed her girlfriend to perform the surgery and then Vic kills herself in front of her father in kind of a fit of madness once she realizes what she has done. One of the most brutal deaths in the show and it truly I would say hers and Perry's were the ones that icked me out the most. Um they were the most intense. Um and it is fascinating that Vic is like a very like put together fancy lady, very like cool mannered. All the other siblings can sometimes be very hot blooded and she's very like reserved, but she has the most unhinged end and is one of the characters who plays like the most active role in her own death. Um, and so Vic to me really represents guilt and the interesting contrast between guilt and shame is shame tells us that we are wrong, right? Camille's character is like deeply thinks something is wrong with her, which there might be, but she feels intense shame about it. Whereas Vic is experiencing guilt and guilt tells us that we did something wrong. The telltale heart is reminding her that you did do something that you are guilty of. That You did a crime. You killed your girlfriend. And so guilt tends to motivate action in us. Now, in Vic's case, it was not the most effective action in that she kills herself in front of her dad. <laughs> but in the real world, in, in life, guilt can be motivating to do something. If we are feeling guilty, we can look at that feeling and say, what is attached to the guilt? And is there something that I can do about it? Right? So obviously the Vic example is extreme. But if you think about it of like, maybe, maybe you haven't texted a friend back for a couple of days because you just are like, you might be feeling overwhelmed or you just don't want to be on your phone or you just like, whatever is happening. You haven't texted a friend back in a while and you start to feel guilty. If you're feeling guilty of like, I haven't responded to this person and it's something that I want to do because I care about them and this is the way that I can show them I care about them, then you can listen to the guilt and say, okay, the thing that will make this guilt go away is if I text them back. Even if it's a few days late or a week late or whatever, I'm going to do it. I'm no fortune teller, but my guess would be that the guilt will feel less intense after taking an action that rectifies the situation that you felt guilty about. So in a sense, it's it can be important for us to listen to our guilt when we feel it. It can lead us in the direction of, okay, what's an action I can take to make this better? Shame says, sit down and cover your head and don't tell anyone what you've done. Guilt says, hmm... I wasn't a huge fan of that. I would like to do something different about it. So I think that guilt can be an incredibly motivating emotion. I'm not saying you need to feel guilty all the time and please don't. And there are also times when guilt can be overpowering or maybe you're feeling guilty for something you don't actually need to feel guilty for. And you're go like, if you're an over-apologizer, it's okay. You don't need to apologize all the time. You don't need to feel guilty for those those things that your brain is telling you you need to feel guilty for. So again, a complicated emotion that you may want to sort out with a therapist. Um, but guilt, I think, can be incredibly motivating where shame cannot be. So if we are feeling guilt, we can do something about it. It can motivate us to take some action. It's an emotion that I would encourage you to listen to. Shame, often, I would say, don't listen to it. it it's not doing you any favors. <laughs> And definitely don't do what Vic did when feeling guilty. That was an extreme action that she took that actually did not make things better. Um, so I would say Vic did not deal with her guilt in a way that I would say was effective. Um, but again, it just, I think for the takeaways, there's, there's something that can be done with guilt. Okay, we have finally made it through the bastard siblings. We are on to the two full-blooded Usher siblings. Uh, the first being Tamerlane. Tamerlane, or Tammy, was named after the poem Tamerlane, which is apparently about a warlord with a broken heart, which I think kind of describes Tamerlane. <laughs> she, she has the intensity of a warlord, but has a deeply, deeply broken psyche and heart. Tamerlane's downfall is ambition, and she, is, she sees ambition as a replacement for the love that she is not getting from her father and lost when her mother died. Well, I, I will say it's heavily implied that her mother died by suicide. But the kind of takeaway is that after the children were no longer living with their mother and were only living with Roderick, they became 
obsessed with money and wealth and power and kind of lost touch with the other parts of themselves. And Tamerlane does really seem, Tamerlane and Freddy, when I get to him, they, they have this quality to them of like, they do seem to be missing like a core spark of something like empathy or compassion. Like they, they are missing those qualities. And so Tamerlane's kind of empty husk is just filled with ambition. And this is what ultimately becomes her downfall. So her kind of story is that she's trying to be the next goop. She's trying to unveil this kind of lifestyle brand within the Usher's company. And she is married to a man who has this like fitness empire. And so it's supposed to really like merge these uh, companies and expand the reach that the Usher company or Fortunato has. And so her whole thing is about launching this company. And we, over the course of knowing Tamerlane in the show, learn that she has some interesting ways of relating to her husband, we'll just say. She does ultimately tell him that she doesn't love him. She picked him because of his image and his connections and the the only reason that they are married is because she chose it and orchestrated everything leading up to it. It wasn't love and it wasn't by chance that they got to meet. It was her ambition in choosing him. Tamerlane also engages in this behavior where she hires an escort to come and do very normal things with her husband. So like they'll sit down for dinner and the husband will ask the escort about her day and then Tamerlane like watches them role play their life like the escort is often pretending to be Tamerlane um in fact Verna is one of the escorts that shows up and like knows everything about Tamerlane so role plays it um and that's like how Tamerlane gets her rocks off is like by watching this mundane role play of her husband and another woman which I think just really speaks to how empty Tamerlane is inside that she does not find herself capable of relating to her partner, but wants the image of it. Like she is more into the image of what their relationship looks like than actually being a participant in it. And so her death is very metaphorical in this, in that she is killed by her reflection in the mirror, essentially. As she, she's like alone in her house, which is covered in mirrors, which is insane. Um, she, Verna is appearing to her as a reflection in the mirror. Um, and like sometimes looking like Tamerlane, sometimes looking like Verna, these different things, but basically Tamerlane is, has not been sleeping, is not doing well. Her husband has left her. All of her siblings are dead except for Freddie. And she is so haunted by what she sees in the mirror that she's smashing the mirror with a uh, poker from the fire and she ends up throwing the poker into the mirror on the ceiling and the shards pierce her and kill her so she is literally killed by her own reflection um which i think just shows that tamerlane's greatest fear was herself was confronting her like true self who she really was and her ambition was a mask to prevent herself from knowing who tamerlane is because if she really got to know who Tamerlane is, she would know that she's a very empty person. So all of this stuff is like to kind of keep her at bay. So her concept is is at one point is the cycle between, I think, like ambition and emptiness and the way that we can fill our lives with things to keep us busy so that we don't have to confront ourselves. And I think that's actually a very relatable experience. Now, I'm not trying to be the next scoop, <laughs> but I think that a lot of people can relate to the idea of maybe there's something about me that I don't like or something about me that I've been struggling with. And rather than confront it, rather than look in the mirror, it is easier to fill, fill, fill my time, fill my day, fill, take all of my energy so that nothing is left to consider what is going on with me. So then lastly, of the siblings, we have Frederick or Freddie or Frederick. He is the firstborn son of Roderick, and he is named after the main character of Poe's first published work, which is called Metzgerstein or something like that. Um, I think it's the firstborn. 
named after the first Poe work. I like I like what they did there. Um, and his death is inspired by the Pit in the Pendulum, which is a story that I have read as well, um, which is based on the Spanish Inquisition and basically the the story of someone being punished for their crimes by like a very fierce um, entity, even though in the pit and the pendulum, it's like the, the crimes are fake, but Freddie's crimes are real. And we will, <laughs> we will talk about that. But I think it really represents how Verna, this entity is, uh, prosecuting the ushers for the crimes that they've done. And, and because their deaths are so tied to like what their fatal flaws are, it is a statement and a judgment on who they are. So Verna, as the raven, you know, really does serve as this supernatural judge for this family and this bloodline. Um, so Freddy, Freddy's whole thing is that he obviously is expecting to be the next CEO because he's the firstborn son. So he's a real coaster. He's really coasting through life. As I mentioned earlier, his wife, Maury, ends up at Perry's party and suffers, you know, horrendous chemical burns. And so this is a theme for Freddy throughout the show is that he is incredibly jealous and insecure about why his wife was at this party. And it is clear that Freddy really did not have to want for much as a child, particularly after his father became wealthy. And so Freddy is unable to reconcile with the fact that the person he wants, which is his wife, did something out of his control and like without his permission and he doesn't know why she did it in fact he never finds out why she did it which is fine he doesn't need to know but this jealousy and this like not having something handed to him on a platter drives him i would say literally insane so basically what he does is he uh brings his wife home against medical advice and kind of sets her up in their house and he starts to torture her. And so what he does is he keeps her isolated. He starts to, you know, prevent her daughter, their daughter from seeing her. He hangs their wedding photo. Like he prints it out and hangs it all over the room. So like all she has to stare at is the wedding photo. And then he puts one like right on top of her hospital bed. And this this woman is like wrapped in gauze and motionless. Like she's she's not going anywhere. So like this is him really driving home a point. And then he starts drugging her with a paralytic that basically keeps her conscious but prevents her from being able to move or speak. Um, and then eventually he pulls out all of her teeth. And he is very explicit when he tells her that he's pulling out of he's pulling out her teeth to teach her a lesson and to basically tell her, you're never gonna do anything that makes me upset again. And in just like extreme like domestic violence situation, horrible, pulls all of her teeth out. Um, and you can see that he is just wanting to control her. This is not about love. It's not even really about betrayal. It's about that he just assumed everyone and everything in his life was under his control. And she proved that that's not true. And she didn't do it. It's like, she really didn't do anything wrong. Not like she would deserve it if she didn't do something wrong. But like she went to this party. She did not have an affair. She did not cheat on him in any way. She went to a party and just didn't tell him that she was going to the party. Which leads me to believe that things were probably not going well in their relationship to begin with. If this was the choice that she made at the beginning of the show. So I would hazard a guess that Freddie was already doing things that were very controlling if she was hiding the place that she was going. And in fact, Perry gives her a burner phone to access the party because he knows that um, she won't do it on her own. So I think everybody kind of knows that Freddie's a weirdo and Freddie is being too controlling of his wife. This is what I say where I feel like his death was kind of deserved because he like did, I mean, they all did bad things, but he like very specifically continued to do bad things <laughs> even as people are starting to be like, uh-oh, something is going on with this family. He is actually killed at the warehouse where Perry's party was. So they're, again, Verna giving this kind of sense of justice of you were killed at the place that your wife survived. And um, she hypnotizes him at the house to put the paralytic into his bag of cocaine. 
because he's also started doing cocaine for fun <laughs> during the events of the show. And she tells him, yours was the only death that I so directly involved myself and usually I'm not so direct in it but she's like you are such a piece of crap for what you did to your wife that I felt I had to um and you know I agree I agree with her you know I don't think we shouldn't be meeting out the death penalty for things like anything really but in the rules of the show I kind of agree with her he was a piece of trash and he really overreacted to his wife going to a party and her being she's like all of her skin's burned off. Like, what she's going to do to you now, bro? Don't leave her her teeth. Anyway, um, so Freddie really embodies this, like, this jealousy. And I think shows the way that if you're in a relationship, if, you know, platonic or romantic or whatever, any type of relationship, if there is any bit of jealousy and it starts to fester and you're not able to express it, it is going to fester to a point where it is toxic. If you're not able to have a conversation with boundaries with your partner, and not able to come to compromises or understand like, you know, maybe one partner is going to be a person that goes out and, and does things on their own and it doesn't, it's not an indictment on the other partner um, or, you know, navigating a long-term relationship, you know, presumably Freddie and Maury have been together for 17 years because that's how old their daughter is. So after 17 years, like maybe there are some boundaries that needed to be renegotiated or discussed. And they weren't. They seemed to be that Freddie imposed them upon Maury and there was no conversation because of his jealousy. So in real life, not in the the fall of the House of Usher, in real life, if there is something that you're feeling jealous about with a partner or a friend or, you know, whatever, being able to first identify, like, what is it that I'm really jealous about? Is it my jealous about them, you know, potentially cheating on me? Am I jealous about they're more attractive than me. Like, am I jealous about something that I could fix? Like maybe they have an iPhone and I want an iPhone. You know what I mean? Like you can fix that. Uh, Or are they jealous or is this jealousy maybe an indicator of an underlying insecurity that I have? And I need to address that. It is not on my partner to fix my insecurity. I am in charge of dealing with that. But if we're not able to either identify it's something I need to work on, it's something I need to work on with my partner, it's a conversation that needs to be had, you know, whatever steps need to be taken. If we're not able to do that, that jealousy will fester and it will grow and it will lead to toxic behavior. So don't be a Freddy. (laughs) Deal with your jealousy in a constructive and healthy way and process it like perhaps with a therapist (laughs) or again, like using, using anything that you need to process that jealousy instead of taking it out on your partner. So lastly, we have Roderick and Madeline. They are the twins who are named after the siblings in the original Poe tale, The Fall of the House of Usher. So they are the Ushers. And they really, I think the the core process that they represent that I think is so interesting is this idea that the world must pay for their misfortune. And this is something that is revealed in the flashbacks when we learn that Roderick and Madeline's mother was a secretary for the CEO of Fortune Auto Pharmaceuticals. So this company that they end up running, foreshadowing, right? <laughs> is their mother is a secretary and she's impregnated by this man who never like claims them or acknowledges that they are his children, definitely does not give their mother any financial support. And their mother has what seems to be a, a mental illness as well as a curable physical illness and a very deep streak of religious fanaticism leads to this combination of her not seeking the doctor or seeking any treatment when she gets ill and she ends up like dying in their house and so the children bury her in the backyard but oops she wasn't quite all the way dead so she pops up out of the earth and strangles their father (laughs) It's wild. This is the show starts off strong. I will say that. Um, but so because of this, because of this dynamic where their mother was like this struggling single woman who couldn't afford to keep them. And she like gets fired by this man because everyone knows that she had these children and it's like a big scandal. So she's abandoned by their father. She's abandoned by her company. And then in her own maladaptive coping, eventually ends up living a lifestyle that leads her to die because she refuses medical treatment. And so because, and and I will say that these are, these are horrible things. 
deeply traumatic for these children to watch their mother die. And they then twist it into this like revenge vendetta that they have against the Fortunato pharmaceutical company. And they believe that they are basically owed the company. It's their birthright because their father was once the CEO. Even though corporations don't really work like that, right? Like you're you're not owed the CEO thing. Because you're not the king, you know. You're not a monarch um, just because you're like a blood relative of the person who runs the company. Um, but they they believe that they are owed this. It's their birthright. Um, they are the like rightful heirs of Fortunato. So the whole events of the show are set in motion because they scheme to take over the company um, back in the '80s and they kill to do it then in fact they kill someone before they even meet verna and and make their deal with the devil so this idea of like the world must pay for their misfortune plays out with them and in fact they continue to like buy into this victim narrative even when they are gajillionaires who started the opioid crisis and madeline has this speech in the last episode that is so fascinating where she's basically saying like the people who are addicted to opioids should be blaming themselves for getting addicted to opioids and nobody should blame us for making something available and pleasurable. And that's like pretty much word for word what she says. Like we made a drug that you like and we made it available for you. So anything that happens after that is on you and not on us. And I think it is a very interesting mindset to have. And I, you know, I don't want to speculate too much on like the real world (laughs) analogs here, but I would imagine that that is probably a common mindset in the very wealthy, like in the Sacklers or the Purdue family, this idea of like, hey, we're just providing you a service. It's up. It's your decision to use it or not. And that completely negates all these aspects of the opioid crisis that are beyond personal responsibility, right? Of course, we can say, well, it's your choice to do heroin or not. It's your choice to, you know, abuse prescription pills or not. But that ignores like the fact that these companies push the drugs out to the doctors and say prescribe them and give faulty information saying they're not addictive and they can be used for everyday mild pain when they literally should only be used for people actively dying. Um, It ignores the fact that many people affected by the opioid crisis are in an economic position where they have to take on jobs that destroy their bodies. So they are in chronic pain and need something to get them through the day. And here's the solution offered to them by, you know, the Sackler family or um, Purdue or, you know, whatever these, these companies are that make these drugs. And, you know, Miri, I could keep naming factors, but I, I will, I've, again, I've already done this. Um, but yeah, I just think it speaks to this idea of like, We've talked about the wealth divide in on this show and the way that like being very wealthy limits your ability to have empathy. And I think Madeline and Roderick really highlight that of they always believed that they should have been very wealthy and that even interfered with their empathy and their ability to take perspective and understand how their actions affected others. And so by the time they make it to the top of this company, Of course, they're going to contribute to something like the opioid crisis because they don't care. They don't see the consumers of their products as people to, you know, be aware of or take care of. They see them as numbers and they see them as profit and they both have their own agendas. Roderick wants to live, you know, a rich man's lifestyle and have affairs with stewardesses and women on yachts. And Madeline wants to become immortal through her her tech company or her tech projects. And both of them are just like, whatever it takes to get to those goals is what we're going to do. And they end up ruining and killing countless people. Um, There's a very powerful scene toward the end of the show where Verna shows Roderick visions of bodies falling from the sky and they're piling up on the streets of the city and on the rooftops. And she tells them every one of those bodies is someone who died because of your drugs. And every five minutes, someone is dying because of your drugs. And it's really powerful to physicalize it like that and to show these aren't numbers. There is a, there's a body and a person attached to each of these numbers, to each of these statistics. And it might be easy to wave our hands and say, well, sure, 
uh, you know, people are affected by this, but it's not that many or it's not many people who live near me, so I don't need to care about it. But to really represent it as each of these numbers is a body and this body doesn't just come with itself. It comes with a family and a life and a community and the ripple effects of each one of those bodies is immense. So I will I will stop here because I could keep talking about this forever. But yeah, I think each of these characters represent an aspect of humanity. Like I, I don't even think that like jealousy or shame or guilt are like necessarily inherently bad, but it's like our reactions to them. Like ambition and hedonism is not you know inherently bad either. Um, it's just the limits, right? What are the limits? What are the consequences? And how do we care for others while pursuing the things that make us feel good and things that we want out of life. So I will leave it there. Thank you so much for listening all the way through and for enjoying and participating in all the Halloween content this year. Um, As always, I appreciate you and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.